Hi, I'm taking a break over the next few weeks. Meanwhile, here's an episode you might have missed. So you'll know, I have some fantastic guests lined up in 2023, many that you've requested. Season's greetings and happy 2023 to all of y'all. Thank you for the messages, emails, support, and the reviews. You make the magic happen for all things Tudor. Hi, I'm Deb Hunter, and welcome to All Things Tudor, the podcast that blows the dust off the history books and brings the world of the Tudors roaring back to life. Each episode will bring you awesome guests and topics, stories, and revelations. The power, the sex, the scandals, the romance, and the ruthlessness. So join me, and together we'll pull back the curtain and discover the real lives of the Tudors. Hi, I'm Deb Hunter. Welcome to All Things Tudor. And today I'm especially thrilled to introduce Tracy Borman, who I believe everyone knows is absolutely one of my favorites. So welcome, Tracy. How are you today? Hi, Deb. It's such a pleasure to be with you. And I'm really looking forward to our chat. Well, thank you. Your CV and your bio is extensive. It would take me 20 or 30 minutes to read it. And I would like to just use something (laughs) you wrote me last year when we worked together on an interview for Chalk Valley History Festival. I asked, how would you describe yourself in 50 words or less? And this is just so great. (laughs) You said, author, historian, and broadcaster whose obsession with the Tudors borders on the unhealthy. (laughs) (laughs) I absolutely love that. I'm also joint chief curator of Historic Royal Palaces and chief executive of the Heritage Education Trust. So welcome, Tracy. Is there anything you would like to add to that? I don't want to go over the 50 words, though. That's that's probably <laughs> quite close to the limit. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm going to leave it at that. Thank you. Well, you have such an exciting career. What led to your love of history? Well, um, I kind of think I was born with it, but it was definitely encouraged um, growing up by being taken to castles uh, in my native Lincolnshire. I, I mean, growing up near Lincoln, it's one of the most historic cities in England. So that definitely helped. Um, but neither of my parents are particularly kind of interested in history. They like it, but it's it's definitely not a passion. My dad always says that it skipped a generation because his dad, um, actually, I never knew my, my grandfather, he died quite young, um, was obsessed with history. And uh, he wrote everything down. He was always writing up stories that he'd read about that interested him. So I kind of think it skipped a generation. But yeah, it was definitely it was definitely helped by growing up somewhere quite so historic. And it's never left me. I was really, really lucky to have an amazing teacher when I was studying for my A-levels, as they are over here in the UK. So I was a class 16. And this teacher, Mrs. Jones, taught me the Tudors. And there was no going back from that moment. She was the most inspirational teacher and woman I had ever met. And so that was when this kind of interest in history became this burning obsession. And I knew I just had to spend my life surrounded by history. And 
you went on, you've studied it. Of course, we know your career. When did you decide, yes, this is what I want to do. This is my career. So I was, again, when I was studying for my A-levels, I um, I had no idea what I wanted to do. I knew I loved history. And I remember really clearly, I went to see a careers advisor <laughs> at school and he said, forget it. You can't have a career in history uh, unless you want to be a teacher, which I didn't. Um, I, I, I thought, that's, you know, I'm just not, I'd be hopeless as a teacher and really respect anyone who has the strength and the skills to do that. But I thought, no, I couldn't, I couldn't do that. And so he said, no, basically forget it. And I remember being really downcast and thinking, well, okay, it'll just have to remain a hobby. Um, but I was determined to at least stay with it as long as possible. So I went to university, studied history. And then when I'd finished one degree, I did another degree in it and then another. <laughs> and I kind of studied for seven years in all at uni to PhD level. And then it was one day when I was looking in the careers library and I was flicking through a book of careers, uh, the H section. There was nothing under history, but there was something under heritage. And I thought, ooh, heritage is interesting. I wonder if I could get a job working in a castle or something like that. That sounds quite cool. And so I just started writing letter after letter and I got so many rejection letters or no replies at all until one stuck. And it was Grimsthorpe Castle, this amazing Tudor stately home in Lincolnshire. They said, if you're willing to volunteer, you can come work for us. And that was really the beginning. It was an amazing place to work. And it, it crucially gave me experience. It's all very well having qualifications, but you need experience to get a job. And that was a real launch pad for me, uh, for my career in heritage. And it all started from there, really. I since, you know, have worked for most of the major heritage organisations, English Heritage, the Heritage Lottery Fund, National Archives, and currently Historic Royal Palaces, as you mentioned, as well as the Heritage Education Trust. And then, of course, I had my parallel writing career, and, and that now is my main job. I'm absolutely thrilled to say. Um, I was lucky enough to get a book published back in 2007. It had been a long-held ambition to write history books um, since doing my A-levels. And uh, yeah, and it, and it all went from there. And, you know, now I couldn't imagine ever not writing. You know, God willing, I will carry on writing as long as I am able to. Well, we definitely hope so. What what inspired your first book? So my first book was Henrietta Howard, King's Mistress, Queen's Servant. Henrietta was the mistress, long-suffering mistress of King George II, so the second Hanoverian King of Britain. And um, I was new to the Georgian period, really, because I'd studied the Tudors all the way through university. That was my kind of favourite subject, um, my familiar ground, really. But I came across Henrietta's story while working for English Heritage. And I visited an English Heritage property called Marble Hill House. Now, that's in West London, in Twickenham, this beautiful kind of village, really, on the, on the River Thames. And Marble Hill House is this gorgeous little Palladian villa owned by Henrietta Howard. So in the 1720s, she had it built. And her portrait was on one of the walls. And I was just captivated by this woman. She was just, there was something about her that drew me to her. And I wanted to find out more. And the more I found out, the more um, I was 
just fascinated by her. And therefore, you know, the, the idea for the book was born. And I was hugely influenced, um, actually, by my very dear friend, as she is now, um, Alison Weir, who I'm sure all of your followers are going to know um, all about. She encouraged me to um, to get an agent to write a proposal for the book. She thought it was a great idea. And and that's where it all began, really. I was lucky enough to to have a proposal accepted, to get a publisher, to get an agent, and uh, and and the rest is history, literally. Quite literally. Do you find you're drawn to strong women in history? Yes, definitely. It's become a bit of a thing for me. I went on from writing Henrietta to write uh, Elizabeth's Women which was all about a very, very strong woman, you know, the Virgin Queen, one of our greatest monarchs, and uh, and about the women who influenced her. So from her mother, Anne Boleyn, through to rivals to the throne, such as uh, Mary, Queen of Scots, and then the women who served Elizabeth at court. So that was all about the women. And and I kind of stayed with women, really. Um, I wrote about Matilda, the wife of William the Conqueror. I wrote about the witchcraft trials of the Jacobean period, um, and I sort of became known, and it kind of annoyed me at the time, I must admit, as a feminist historian. There's something quite dismissive about that. And I thought, I'm not a feminist. I just like women's history. You know, well, I, I am a feminist, I suppose, but that's not my driving force. You know, I just found these women interesting. And so it was generally women um, who I wrote about. But then since, I have written about a fair few men. I've written about Thomas Cromwell and about uh, Henry VIII and the men who made him, uh, which is sort of like Elizabeth's women, but for the men, for Henry VIII. Um, and then most recently, a, a book on the whole British monarchy. And, you know, there are many, many more kings than queens in the uh, past thousand years of British royal history. Exactly. And that was my next question. Let's talk about your new book, Crown and Scepter. What inspired it? Well, Crown and Scepter was really inspired by the forthcoming Queen's uh, Platinum Jubilee. So Elizabeth II is on the very eve of celebrating her 70th year on the throne. That's on the 6th of February this year. And I thought, what a remarkable moment to look back over the whole history of the monarchy to really set the Queen's reign into context, perhaps compare her with some of her uh, predecessors, but also look at the institution of monarchy and how that has evolved over the past um, millennium. And so that was really the idea. I thought, you know, if, if I get on with this, I can uh, I can write this book in time for the Jubilee. And uh, thanks to lockdown, I have to say, I managed it. Otherwise, I think I would still be writing it because you can imagine what a vast undertaking to write a history of the whole monarchy. It was by far the most intimidating job I had ever taken on, but I became hooked because what I loved about it, uh, of course, it was retreading familiar ground, the Tudors uh, and the Georgians, some of the ones I'd written about before, but also discovering so many new monarchs, uh, the early Henrys, the Plantagenets, uh, the Victorians. I absolutely loved it. And I, I feel now it's given me such a good grounding in the whole cross-section of, uh, of royal history. So it's, it's been a real joy. So it sounds like basically you've been researching this book unknowingly for your entire life. I think that's true. 
so were you able to just write it in a two-year span or is it something you've been working on for a while? Well, um, it, I was given 18 months to write it, so not very long really given the size of the book. You're right though, in a sense, my whole career had been building to this moment in that I, yes, I, I have specialised very strongly in the Tudors, but I have written about the Normans and and the Georgians. Uh, I wrote a history of the Tower of London, which covered a thousand years. So um, I wasn't starting from scratch, but even so, there was a whole lot of research to do before I could put pen to paper because, you know, there were real gaps in my knowledge. I, I didn't know much about um, the sort of the later uh, Normans, the uh, Plantagenets, and the later Stuarts. And, and so really what I did was to start from scratch. So I decided to give every monarch the same attention. So for those who I knew well, pretend that I didn't know them well, um, because I really wanted to get a sense of objectivity with this book and, and to truly give each monarch the place that they deserved rather than bringing a whole load of prior knowledge, you know, and, and understanding to it. And so I did just literally start at the beginning, prelude on the Anglo-Saxons, and then researched each monarch one by one from William the Conqueror all the way up to Elizabeth II. Uh, so yeah, it was a real education. So did you write it chronologically or did you say, well, I'm I'm going to write about George the Third today and and go back to the Plantagenets tomorrow? No. <laughs> no tempting though that was. Uh, uh, yes, particularly with the monarchs where I was drawing a bit of a blank. Uh, but no, I wrote it strictly chronologically. Um for my own sanity, I felt I needed to do that because it was such a big undertaking. And I just had to be very, very methodical about it and um, go one by one. Um, and so that's the way I achieved it, starting at the beginning, working all the way through. But then, of course, once I'd done that initial research and I research and write as I go along, it's just easier, um, more efficient use of time. Once I'd done that first lot of research and writing, I then went back and did more detailed research. And that wasn't necessarily in order, but it didn't matter so much because I already had the kind of bones of the book there. Um, and it, it, what it meant, doing it in a quite a strict way, a chronological way, it meant that I didn't go to, down too many rabbit holes of research. You know, when you just find something really interesting and you can't resist and you end up spending way too long on one subject. And <laughs> it stopped me doing that because um, I had to be really, really disciplined uh, with this book. Yeah, those rabbit holes are hard to resist though, aren't they? Yeah, and they can be <laughs> great for smaller subjects. I would I would heartily encourage them. Um, if you've got a lot of time and you're looking at a very detailed subject, go down as many rabbit holes as possible. But I thought, you know, I'm never going to get this book finished. It'll be a life's work if if I do that. So I was I was very very strict. Well, a thousand years of kings and queens. Why do you think we're so drawn to the Tudor dynasty? Well, for me, it's a period of sheer drama. I kind of think there's no wonder we're obsessed with the Tudors. You have a king who marries six times. You have a queen who doesn't marry at all and goes down in history as the Virgin Queen. It's the age of, of reformation, of the forging of a national identity, of Shakespeare, of Sir Walter Raleigh, overseas exploration. It's like the whole of history is condensed into this period of 118 years. Um, it's such a colourful, such a fascinating period. And yes, 
yes, of course, there are other fascinating and colourful periods in our long history, but I think the Tudors just has it all. You literally couldn't make it up when it comes to the Tudors. You really can't. Um, I mean, a man who was married not only six times, but had two of his wives beheaded. I mean, you who could make that up? There's just nothing like it, is there? No, exactly. I mean, it's what people must have thought at the time, you know, and especially as news travelled quite slowly, Henry would always be on, already be on to the next wife by the time they'd learned about the one before. Um, and, you know, there are such great characters from this period. And of course, one of the ones that we talk about the most, and I think justifiably, is, is Anne Boleyn. She's by far the most famous of the six wives, for good reason, really. I mean, she changed the course of history. And even though she didn't get to enjoy being queen for all that long, given everything she'd done to get there, she left this incredible legacy, not just, you know, the Reformation, the break with Rome and all of that, but more specifically her daughter, the future Elizabeth. That's when I think Anne had the last laugh, when her forgotten, neglected daughter, who was such a disappointment to Henry, went on to be more successful than any of them. And what really boggles my mind is that Henry tried to do away with everything about Anne, and somehow she is so charismatic, so enigmatic, that we're completely taken with her, aren't we? Mm. I think in a way as well, he, the, the fact Henry did that has made us more fascinated by her because we love an enigma, don't we, in history? If um, somebody can't be too reachable, I think, in a way, we we love a controversial character who perhaps we don't know that much about or enough about. And, and so it keeps us guessing. So, yeah, the fact that Henry tried to wipe her from the face of the earth. You know, it backfired spectacularly. I think he would hate the fact that we're all so interested in her 500 years on. He would have wanted us to forget her in the same way as he tried to. I don't think he actually did, though. Um, In public, he might have done. But um, she was was his great obsession for seven years. So, you know, I don't think he could have just airbrushed her from history like that. Um, But she was, though. It wasn't just about the fact that she's enigmatic and she she hasn't left much trace behind. Here was an extraordinary woman, and I think a very relatable woman. She was ahead of her time. This was a time when women were second-class citizens. Legally, they had the status of infants. They were That's how they were treated. They couldn't inherit property or estates unless literally every other boy in the family had died. They had no rights as wives, as daughters, Uh, They were entirely subservient to men. And then here you have Anne Boleyn and she comes onto the scene like a rocket with opinions. She's feisty and she speaks up for herself and, and she disagrees with the king. And he's just completely, you know, swept up by Anne Boleyn. This is all so intoxicating for Henry when she is his mistress, not in body, but, you know, uh, in every other respect, she's his mistress. And he can't get enough of it because, you know, he's never met anybody like this before. But those qualities that had so attracted him during their courtship, he found repugnant in a wife 
So as soon as they were married, he expected her to then conform to that stereotype of a Tudor wife and a Tudor queen. Catherine of Aragon had uh, famously looked the other way during Henry's infidelities. Anne Boleyn made it clear she was not going to do the same. And so, you know, it, it was set on a collision course. But yes, yeah, she's such an extraordinary woman, so ahead of her time. Um, and I just think it's wonderful that as part of her legacy, we are still fascinated by her and inspired by her story today. Did Henry and Anne find their way into your new book? Uh, yes, they did. Into Crown and Scepter, they absolutely did. They they certainly get quite a lot of the limelight. Um, it was when I first wrote, so when I wrote the first draft of Crown and Scepter, uh, the Tudor section was about half the book. And then I had to go back and take out an awful lot of words because, you know, my bias was showing through a little bit there. Um, so, yeah, they, they perhaps get uh, less share uh, of the limelight than in a purely Tudor history. Um, but they they certainly get, you know, their time in the sun, uh, should we say. Um, and it's... It was fascinating to be able to set that story into context uh, because it does still stand the test of time as one of the most dramatic episodes in the long history of the British crown. Very true. And like you said, their daughter, Elizabeth, became one of the greatest monarchs that Great Britain's ever had. So it's just remarkable that how that small time frame shaped the entire world. I, I do have to ask, with your ties to Hampton Court Palace and writing about Henry and Anne, most people that are Tudor files know that a falcon was just discovered that belonged to Anne Boleyn. Mm. Can, can you embellish or give us more information on that? Maybe not yeah. embellish, but tell us more. <laughs> I can, that that incredible falcon. Oh, my goodness. Like you said earlier, there are so few traces of Anne. So when a new one turns up, you imagine the excitement worldwide, not just at Hampton Court. So I first heard about this falcon when I was just putting the finishing touches to Crown and Scepter. And I had an email from my lovely colleague, James Peacock, uh, at Hampton Court. And he said, I've got this friend, uh, and she's an American historian, Sandra uh, Vasoli, and she's a specialist on Anne Boleyn. And she has got a friend <laughs> who is a, an antiques dealer and he is a specialist in, in Tudor antiques. And he has something quite special. Um, and it is uh, one of Anne Boleyn's falcons. Now, he, so he believes and he thinks that it was once at Hampton Court because Henry VIII decorated Hampton Court in Anne's honour prior to her becoming his queen. So you imagine my reaction. I get this email and I was just like, wow, hang on a minute. Okay, I'm not going to press send on the manuscript until I find out about this. And so I got in touch with Sandy and she was just amazing. She's such a, a mine of information. And she put me in touch with the antiques expert who's Paul Fitzsimmons, who owns the Falcon. And he sent me photographs of it. And I just got more and more excited because, you know, I do get told about artifacts like this in my job at Historical Palaces. And I have to say, disappointingly, nine out of 10 turn out to be fake. But I kind of, well, I definitely trusted Sandy and I trusted James Peacock. And and I thought, you know, if Paul's a contact of them, then he must be bona fide and, and so must his find. And so I wrote about it in the book. And then it was just before Christmas, uh, so a few weeks ago, when Paul 
brought the falcon to Hampton Court. Now, I have to tell you, that was one of the best days of my entire career. I can still remember, it gives me shivers down the spine. So I was standing in the Great Hall at Hampton Court, where we think the falcon would have been as part of the decorations. And Paul walked in at the far end carrying this briefcase. And my eyes were just on that briefcase as he walked up the Great Hall. And he shook my hand and then he set the briefcase down on the table in front of us. And I just couldn't take my eyes off it as he opened the briefcase. And there was this beautiful kind of pink velvet pouch inside it. And he took out of the pouch the falcon, which was wrapped carefully in tissue paper. And he let me unwrap it. I didn't even want to blink. I was looking down at this piece of history. It felt like I was staring Anne herself in the face somehow. It sounds crazy to say because I've studied Anne for years, but this was the first time she really did come alive for me. Here is this emblem that's so closely associated with her. And it survived. It survived for five centuries. How on earth it survived, we don't know. But there it was. It was just an extraordinary moment. And then Paul let me, you know, put on the white gloves and actually hold the falcon while my hands were shaking. Uh, and I later got to show it to James uh, Peacock, who was just speechless and, and kind of nearly in tears when he saw it. Um, and I am utterly thrilled to share with you and, and your listeners that the falcon is making its way to Hampton Court on a long-term basis uh, very soon. Um, it, we're going to hopefully have it on loan from the wonderful Paul. It's been authenticated. It really is Anne Boleyn's falcon. The detailing is extraordinary. The symbolism, it's this falcon resting on a bed of Tudor roses. It's wonderful. It's been restored so you can see the original colours and the gilding. And once it's at Hampton Court, we will be displaying it so that people can come take a look for themselves. So I hope people come as soon as they're able, as soon as the pandemic permits uh, to come to Hampton Court from all over the world to see this remarkable survivor Actually, from the time some of, of Anne Boleyn. Uh, decorations uh, in absolutely. Anne's honour were literally painted over. The ones that they couldn't quite get to to, that, uh, that was to take down or, or that they would just and couldn't be bothered to take down. What they painted this? them how, over. That could have happened how to large, how It was small black. Is it? He had it restored and the, the colours just pop. But what I love about it, it shows the speed with which this decoration was put up because while the, the, the falcon itself is imagined immaculately carved, um, probably by Richard Ridge, who was a master carpenter uh, in the King's Court. Um, while it was beautifully carved, it was obviously painted in a bit of a hurry. The paintwork isn't all that good. It's kind of, it's gorgeous, uh, but it's a bit haphazard and they've kind of slapped the paint on and it runs over the edges a bit. Um, and you get the sense that Henry is in a hurry. He wants to get this place decorated for Anne uh, in preparation for her being queen. And I just love historical details like that. They just make it all the more real. How would this falcon have been used at Hampton Court? Well, we don't know exactly, but there are near identical falcons to exist still. They survived, they weren't taken down, but they're way up in the ceiling of the Great Hall, um, which is perhaps why they've survived, actually. Um, but they are 
pretty much exactly the same as this one. So either this one used to be in the ceiling as well, um, or perhaps it was lower down, perhaps it was more prominent, maybe over an archway. It could even have been in Anne's private apartments at Hampton Court rather than in the Great Hall. You get the feeling that Richard Ridge uh, was commissioned to make a whole lot of these falcons. They'd have been everywhere because Henry was not a subtle man. He wanted everybody to see, this is the woman I'm going to marry very, very soon. She's going to be Queen of England, whether you like it or not. This is her emblem. Everybody knew the falcon was so associated with Anne Boleyn. So there would probably have been tens if not hundreds of these falcons. So isn't it amazing and very enticing to think this one survived. Now I like to think somebody made sure it survived because Henry ordered them to be destroyed, taken down, destroyed. He wasn't interested. Uh, he wanted no reminders of Anne Boleyn after her fall from grace. So I kind of think somebody deliberately saved this one, maybe a supporter of Anne, maybe even this would be a dream come true. You know, they saved it for her daughter, Elizabeth. We know that Elizabeth grew to revere her mother's memory. Um, and I don't know, I think things don't always survive purely by accident. Uh, so that's another enticing part of the whole Falcon story. If you're a fan of Tudor history, come join us at All Things Tudor, a Facebook group dedicated to, well, all things Tudor. Members can contribute a wide array of subject matter about Tudor history. You can also listen to the All Things Tudor podcast. There's a book club and a weekly clubhouse live audio chat, often featuring very special guests. Look for upcoming surprises for the group members in 2022. Become a member of one of the largest groups of Tudor history enthusiasts on the planet. Simply go to the Facebook search bar, type in all things Tudor, select the option to join the group, and of course answer the membership questions. Join us now at All Things Tudor. Look forward to seeing you. When will we be able to see this at Hampton Court Palace? Well, watch this space, really. We don't actually have a date yet, but we're working hard to, to make it happen, hopefully this year. Of course, it's quite interesting because this year is an important one uh, for Anne Boleyn. It's the 500th anniversary of her first appearance at Henry's court. So she was first recorded at being a, a member of a pageant at court in uh, on Shrove Tuesday. So that was March 1522. So wouldn't it be amazing if we got to mark the anniversary with the arrival of her falcon? Oh, that would be beyond my wildest dreams. If I could be able to see it too, and not only me, but thousands of us that love this kind of stuff. So thank you for telling us about it. No, oh, I'm, I'm delighted to share the story because it is just so enticing. And I'm so pleased it's kind of captured people's imaginations in the way that I hoped it would. When I first heard about it, I was beyond excited. And I know how many followers of Anne Boleyn there are out there. So it, it really has captured people's imaginations. It has. And uh, James and Sandy are friends of mine. And I'd just like to mention that James is the head of the Anne Boleyn Society, correct? Absolutely. Yeah. And he's just wonderful. He's been so influential in getting Anne's story out there. And we've had lots of lovely chats both um, on his channel, but, but also just as colleagues at Hampton Court. And there is, I think, nobody more passionate about Anne Boleyn uh, than James. He's, he's just a wonder. He's really done a, a lot to further her cause, so to speak. He's brought a lot of education mm. to light. So 
I wanted to bring him up real quick. Now, back to your book, Crown and Scepter. Did you discover a few things that blew your mind while you were writing this book? Yeah, I, I did really. I mean, the Falcon has to be the the kind of ultimate um, because that came in very late in the day. But um, but to be told about that that was great. Um, but I think it was it was less a case of discovering things that hadn't been known, but that were new to me. And so the the things that really blew me away uh, was having my preconceptions shattered um, about certain monarchs. And I'm going to name one of them, and that was Edward VIII. So. There's this great romantic story around Edward. He gave up the throne for love. Uh, he, he was determined to marry Wallace Simpson, the love of his life. So, so he abdicated. And, um, you know, it's often depicted as the mean old royal establishment. They wouldn't let him marry her. So he gave up the throne for love. But goodness me, having researched Edward's history, we had a lucky escape. He would have been a dreadful king. He was a dreadful king. And actually, he had a whole other side to him. It's not this great romantic story necessarily. That's not the beginning and end of it. He had a really cruel streak. He had a younger brother, John, um, who died when he was very young. And I think one of the stark illustrations of Edward's cruelty is a letter that he wrote to their mother after John's death, basically telling her to get over it, saying, oh, you know, you're showing improper grief over all of this. And she's just lost her 12-year-old son. And he comes across as incredibly callous, incredibly vain too. And he was clearly bored by being king. He loved being Prince of Wales because he was this celebrity figure with no responsibility. But as king, all of that changed. He didn't want to do his duties as king. He found it confining, he said, and boring and frustrating. So, you know, I think it's a good job Wallace Simpson came along because otherwise I think it would have been a pretty disastrous reign. Oh my goodness. I I don't know that much about him, but that that's kind of eye-opening mm. right there. Was there anyone else in history that surprised you maybe in a good way? Yeah, I mean, I think I became really interested by monarchs who've been overlooked. And I'm thinking in particular of Henry I. So I think I'd have struggled to name three things about Henry I before I wrote this book. But he was the youngest son of William the Conqueror. And uh, so he was around in the 1100s. And he has definitely been overlooked. It's like, Henry who? Um, what did he do? Well, firstly, he was, I think, the most successful of the early Norman kings. He was the first one that truly united the Anglo-Saxons and the Normans because he'd been born in England. So the Normans were pretty despised for the first kind of 50 or so years um, after the, the Battle of Hastings. But Henry I was seen as much more acceptable because he'd been born in England. He was also a very clever man. He didn't just want to win glory on the battlefield. He was a great administrator. He was a great scholar. But he had another side to him as well because Henry I claims the dubious honour of fathering more illegitimate children than any other monarch in British history. 24 illegitimate children. And uh, that's quite quite an achievement. And ironically, it ended up with a succession crisis because he did have some legitimate children as well. But then the white ship disaster took place and uh, and his only legitimate son and heir drowned, um, as did one of his illegitimate daughters. And he was left with just one heir. And that was his daughter, Matilda. But 
you know, this theme of women being second class citizens was very much current then. And people saw it as a disaster to leave your throne to a woman. You know, having a female monarch was unheard of, disastrous. And actually, it plunged the country into civil war. So it was a fascinating time. But Henry I himself, I think, is definitely worthy of more attention than he's received. It's a really, really interesting time in our history. 24 illegitimate children. You wonder how he had time to run a country. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) He was a busy guy. (laughs) So (laughs) we're going to talk about Tracy. How can we find you on social media? So um, I'm on Twitter, um, at Tracy Borman. I'm on Instagram, uh, Tracy.Borman. And they are my two kind of main social media channels, if you like, or I I don't know what the correct phrase is. I'm not very tech savvy. But I also have a website, which is tracyborman.co.uk. And I put information there about my latest books and also about my speaking events. And increasingly in recent times, those events are online, which although I miss live audiences, what that does mean is that they're accessible globally. Um, So, you know, there is an upside. Sometimes it means getting up um, at at some ungodly hour to tune in. But, you know, at, at least it enables me to talk to people, you know, all across the world, which is just thrilling. I can't get my head around that. And it's really great for those of us over here who can't get over there and we can just tune in and basically, if not talk to you, at least find out your latest discovery or what you're writing about. So I'm so glad you're doing that now. Thanks for joining us. You'll have to come back at some point and let us know more. I'm sure you're working on something else. I don't know if you can tell me what it is or not, but feel free if you'd like. Yeah. I can, absolutely, Deb. And and I hope it's something that uh, you and your followers will be interested and excited by, because actually my next book is about Anne Boleyn and Elizabeth. So it's that mother-daughter relationship, um, which has long been a source of fascination for me. So I get to write about two of my favourite women of all time. It's an absolute joy and a thrill. I'm working on it as we speak. Um, It's actually going to be out later this year. Hopefully, at the same time in the States, it's certainly going to come out in the States, but in the UK, it's going to be published in November this year, so 2022. And wow, what an utter joy it is to work on. Um, So yeah, watch this space. Definitely. Well, thank you very much for your time. And thank you for joining All Things Tudor. And we look forward to talking with you in the future. Thank you, Tracy. Thanks, Deb. It's been such a pleasure. You've been listening to All Things Tudor. My thanks go to listeners, my husband, and my team. If you like what you hear, leave a review, follow wherever you get your podcast, and share with your friends to help others find the show. Join the All Things Tudor Facebook community to connect with tens of thousands of Tudor history lovers. You can also connect with me across social media at TheDebATL. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch y'all later.